For a guy who once held down the number two spot in the protocol section of the State Department, Jack Morley had come a long way, all of it in the wrong direction. I walked right past his table on the terrace of the Café Rotonde a couple of times without recognizing him. What I saw was a shabby drunk who needed a shave, a haircut, and chances were a bath. He was wearing what looked like somebody's cast-off safari jacket. It was a couple of sizes too big for Jack and made his neck look like a rooster's. You couldn't blame me for not recognizing him. The last time I'd laid eyes on Jack Morley had been a couple of years ago in Washington. Handshaking a pair of Middle Eastern diplomats into Blair House, he'd been turned out in his usual go-to-meeting outfit. Camel's hair topcoat, white silk scarf, dark worsted suit, and Homburg. He resembled then everybody's idea of what the boy voted most likely to succeed at Harvard turned into ten years later. Any resemblance between that Jack Morley and the drunk trying his best not to knock over the table while he got a glass of Pernod to his mouth outside the Café Rotonde on Boulevard Montparnasse in Paris was purely coincidental. I got a table near the lottery booth, ordered a drink, and looked across Boulevard Raspail to the traffic island where Rodin's statue of Balzac, considered obscene even by the French, until they gave the bronze old man a bronze cloak, was now half hidden by the branches of a chestnut tree. I looked at my watch. It was a quarter to eight of a warm evening, and Jack Morley already was fifteen minutes late. I decided to give him until I finished my whiskey and water, and then go up to the Raspail Vert for some bouillabaisse. If it had worked out that way, none of this would have happened the way it did. But as I asked the waiter for my check— a big and not-quite-frowsy-looking blonde drifted over to my table, jerked a thumb in the direction of the shabby drunk, and asked, in an accent that was British, but not BBC, "'He wants to know, are you Mr. Drum?' I looked where she was pointing and still failed to recognize Jack. I glanced back at the blonde. She was big without being fat, with a Devon milkmaid's overabundant figure, rosy cheeks and china-blue eyes— her streaky blonde hair was long and combed in no particular fashion, or maybe not combed at all. Her mouth was a sullen red pout. "'I'm Drum,' I admitted. "'Who's your friend?' She had been sitting with the shabby drunk. "'He's your old friend, Jack Morley,' she said somewhat indignantly. "'Who else might he be?' I went over to Jack's table. The waiter brought a third chair. "'Shit! You old son of a gun!' Jack Morley said." His eyes were bloodshot and seemed oddly vulnerable without the dark, shell-rimmed glasses. But his grin, finally, was the same. He stuck out a moist hand. I could feel a tremor in the fingers when I shook it. And his head was shaking, too, slightly, on the scrawny neck. Only a banality could have covered my shock over how much Jack Morley had changed. "'Long time no see,' I said. "'God, it's good to see you. Have a drink?' The waiter took our orders. I wrote you as soon as I read in the Paris Trib you were opening an office in Geneva. Going international, huh? he said, a shade enviously. Trying to put the Pinkertons out of business? More and more of my cases take me to Europe. I decided I might as well have a place to hang my hat. One man office? I got a guy who holds the fort for me in Washington while I'm here, and vice versa. I said that uneasily. I had the notion that Jack was going to ask me for a job. And while I would have snapped up the old Jack Morley as a partner, the Jack Morley sitting on the cafe terrace with me was another matter.